Good morning, everyone. Today's passage is from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the later man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the later man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord." And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. How many of you enjoy attending weddings? Enjoy attending weddings? Rich, Rognes, you don't enjoy attending? (laughs) Sorry. I love to call my friends out. (laughs) You can see everything up here, by, by the way. Just saying. No, I, I love to attend weddings. I really do. Um, I've lost track of how many I've attended. I don't even know how many I've officiated thus far over my years of pastoral ministry. But I tell you what I've, I've never heard or seen when planning the ceremony beforehand. I've never once heard the couple say something like this. You know, you know Pastor, we, we want you to understand that we only expect this marriage to last a few years. So let's not make a big deal about the whole to death do us part thing. We're deliberately not spending money on a reception because we want to downplay the, the celebratory elements here. And, and while you're at it, Pastor, could you recommend a good divorce lawyer at the end of this premarital counseling? We, we just thought it would be good to, to go into the relationship ready for the inevitable. I've never heard that. Um, if you've heard that, somebody call time out on that wedding. Uh, no couple talks like that. Why, why not? Because nobody heads into marriage hoping for a divorce or preparing for a divorce. And yet, you probably know roughly half of first-time marriages in the U.S. end in a divorce. And for second marriages, it's even higher, almost 70%. And third marriages, over 70% end in a divorce in our country. And guess which religious group has the highest number of divorces, highest rate? Evangelical Protestants. Guess what category we're in? <laughs> that's, that's us, friends. In our culture, nearly every one of us knows someone who is divorced or has talked with someone considering a divorce, or has personally contemplated getting a divorce, or, or maybe you have a friend at school that's, that's growing up or living in a family where there's parents that are divorced. I mean, this is all around us, isn't it? Whether you're married or single, here's the bottom line. We, we need to understand what God says. We really need to about divorce and remarriage. 
If you're 12 years old and just graduated from King's Kids, I will not call out one of my boys. Uh, You need to know how to think about marriage and divorce. It will shape how you process what your friends at school are experiencing, right? It'll shape how you respond to conflict in your own family. It'll shape how you or who you choose to date and maybe marry one day. If you're 72 years old or higher, got some of those here, and you've celebrated your golden anniversary, you need to know what Scripture says about Marriage and divorce. Why? Because it will strengthen your gratitude for what God has worked in your own marriage. And it will equip you to counsel the people around you, not with, well, you know, what worked for my wife and I. (laughs) I'm grateful that worked. But the best counsel is rooted in the Word, not what worked for you. The same principle applies, friends, if, if you're a single adult. And you heard this passage and you thought, nothing here for me this morning. (laughs) Same principle. Love does more than send thoughts or prayers to married people who are having trouble in their relationship. Okay, love speaks the truth in love. With humility, with courage. If you're single, you need to be busy exhorting and encouraging married people in your circle of influence to guard the gospel by guarding your marriage. And, to not leave this group out, if you're presently in a difficult marriage, you really need to understand what God has to say about marriage and divorce and remarriage. Why? Because the temptation, oh, this is so real, the temptation to to make decisions based on what feels less painful or what makes sense in your own mind, or what sympathetic friends affirm as okay, is a real problem. Bottom line, Kingsway, we cannot wait for trouble to come our way to understand what does God have to say about marriage and divorce, and remarriage. You wait till you're in a conflict. Married friend, you wait till your marriage feels like it's on the rocks, and you're like, oh no, what do I do here? Well, I sure hope God says what I want to hear. It's too late. You need to know now. Prepare now. Study God's word. Submit your life to its authority now. Why? Because nothing less than our witness to the truth of the gospel is at stake in the public testimony of our marriages. That's why. Marriage is not a human relationship of convenience. It's a divine institution reflecting the relationship between Christ and his blood-bought people. It's not a signpost that you like her or she likes you. It's a signpost to the saving power of our God who keeps covenant and practices steadfast love. So in this short section, a year ago when I planned this sermon series, I felt the Lord prompted me to linger here. To linger here because 
We need to interpret what Moses is saying to Israel here about divorce, remarriage, in light of the entire counsel of the word of God. You'll never get this passage right. I mean, doesn't this apply to every part of scripture? But especially here, it's a great example. You'll never get this right. You'll never understand what God is saying on his own terms, in his own categories, if you don't understand this passage in the context of the book in which God placed it. So we're going to read backward this morning to Genesis. We're going to read forward this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, to 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to then come back to Deuteronomy 24. And then we're going to go forward again and end in Jeremiah chapter 3. So buckle your seatbelt. All right? Because my aim, friends, is to equip you to think biblically about divorce and remarriage. So that you can know what is good and approve what is good and practice what is good, and counsel what is good. So, I've organized what Scripture teaches both here and elsewhere on this topic into four foundational principles. But I trust as we work through these, you'll recognize this is not, this is not the wisdom of man. Okay? This is not what Matthew thinks. This is not what this church believes. Let me kind of evaluate that against, did anybody line up with what I believe? That's dangerous. This is, as best as I can tell, what God Almighty has said. Listen for him. Principle number one. Here we go. Divorce is forbidden in most situations. Divorce is forbidden in most situations. In chapter 24, Start in Deuteronomy, and Moses introduces us to a man that doesn't want to be married anymore. Verse 1, his wife finds no favor in his eyes. Why not? Because he sees, note, something indecent or repulsive in her. Now, Moses doesn't tell us exactly what that is. It's the same Hebrew word he used back in Deuteronomy 23 to refer to human excrement. It's a general description that, that captures, that describes anything that is repugnant or repulsive in someone's eyes. Bottom line, this guy wants out of the marriage, and his reason is something other than infidelity or sexual morality. How do we know that? Because if that was the case, all the procedures Moses just laid out in Deuteronomy 22 that I preached on a few weeks ago would come into play. But they don't. So in modern parlance, we might say irreconcilable differences are afoot. I want you to notice here as well, Moses is not endorsing divorce. He's assuming Israelite men are going to divorce their wives, write a certificate, send them out of their house, creating a domestic and spiritual train wreck in the process And the regulations he establishes here are are simply designed to what? Contain the fallout and to provide some basic protections for vulnerable parties, especially women. Jesus makes this crystal clear in Matthew 19. He shows us how to read this passage. Listen to this. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother 
and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together. Let not man separate. They said to him, Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Is that what Moses is doing here? No. But that's certainly how they took it. Why? Because that interpretation lined up with exactly what they wanted to do. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you, regulated you, To divorce your wives. But from the beginning, guys, it was not so. What are the Pharisees doing? What have they done? Well, they came to the law looking for permission to do what they wanted to do. Anybody ever come to the Bible like that? Right? What they want to do? Divorce their wife for any cause. What should they have done? Come to the law looking to understand the will of God. What's God's will for marriage? Well, Matthew tells us. Jesus tells us in Matthew 19. He quotes Genesis 2 and affirms marriage is a lifelong covenant, right? It's a till death do us part kind of thing. What what Genesis 2 establishes, the prophets in the Old Testament repeatedly affirm. Jesus isn't going rogue here. He's realigning Israel with what God's been saying all along. Malachi 2.16. For the man who doesn't love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. But, but what if she's not fun to be with anymore? What if... What if Every conversation we have, and trust me, I always start as a conversation. It's just a conversation. turns into a fight. What if what what she wants in bed is not what I want to give in bed? Or vice versa? What if my spouse becomes repugnant or repulsive in my eyes? Do not be faithless, says the Lord. Don't be faithless. Why not? For the simple reason, friend, that that your marriage doesn't exist to satisfy your felt needs. Do you believe that? The point of your marriage, if you're married... Its aim, its goal, its its divine design, its intended purpose is not to satisfy your felt needs. What is its purpose? It's to be a public testimony to the faithfulness of God. Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is profound which is why I think we're all getting a little quiet. (laughs) And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. In other words, the public integrity of the gospel 
God in his wisdom has bound up in the public integrity of your marriage. What you do in your marriage determines whether you speak the truth or a lie about God's love for his people. That's the point. And that's why scripture, building off that purpose, forbids divorce. In nearly every situation, it's, it's not, how do we often talk about this in our culture? It's not an unfortunate necessity. It's not less than ideal but understandable given the circumstances. <laughs> it's wrong because it's an act of covenant unfaithfulness. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 19, 9, that if you divorce your wife or husband and marry someone else, you are committing adultery. You're committing adultery. Even if they've been incredibly selfish and unkind to you, even if you think the pastor you're talking to has no idea the garbage that has come your way, I don't. You divorce them, you're being unfaithful. You're breaking a covenant. The Apostle Paul couldn't be clearer. 1 Corinthians 7, 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Full stop. But there are two exceptions to that rule. Which brings us to, to principle number two. Two, two situations where, where divorce is permitted, not mandated, permitted, as an expression of God's justice. Principle two, divorce is permitted in two situations. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So what's exception number one? Where, where sexual immorality has gone down, taken place in a marriage relationship. All sin is serious, brothers and sisters. But sexual sin is especially serious. Why? Because it shatters covenant relationships. Blows them up. You're married, you sin sexually against your spouse, you're not physically faithful to her, you, you are dynamiting a covenant relationship. Where sexual immorality has taken place in all the various forms it may go down, Jesus permits divorce, though he doesn't require it. And listen carefully, okay? That, that's a really important distinction. Permitted but not required because there are a lot of situations where, where the most God-glorifying response to sexual infidelity in marriage may very well be forgiveness and reconciliation. Restoration. There are men and women in this room, members of our church, who have been exceedingly gracious for Jesus' sake to a spouse who has fallen into sexual sin. You know who you are. I cannot single you out for obvious reasons. But oh, that more churches would be filled with powerful testimonies. 
to the forgiveness and reconciliation that makes much of Jesus. But having said that, okay, we must not create some sort of moral hierarchy in response to sexual sin and marriage where the most God-glorifying response is always to welcome the sinner back home. Okay? Why not? Because you can forgive someone, truly and biblically, even when their sin has shattered your ability to trust them and remain married to them. Make sense? So sometimes, the most loving thing a spouse can do is is allow their husband or wife to experience the consequences, the covenant-shattering, covenant-breaking consequences of sexual immorality. Especially when when godly sorrow or repentance are MIA. (laughs) They're not on the table. Or or a spouse has just said, I have no intention of remaining sexually faithful. I mean, if you'll let me hang out, I'll, I'll pay the bills, but nothing else. Well, that's, that's exception number one, sexual morality. Here's exception number two, all right? When a Christian is married to a non-Christian and the unbeliever, the unbelieving partner, chooses to abandon the marriage, to separate from their Christian spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12. If a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Why not? For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Question, is Paul talking about salvation and sanctification by proxy? (laughs) You know, like... Well, if I love the Lord my God, then it sort of counts that my kids are loving the Lord. No. No, it is before the Lord that each one stands or falls. So what's he talking about? It's not salvation by proxy. He's talking about godly influence. He's talking about the God-glorifying effect. Some of you need to hear this. Of, of showing your unsaved spouse, your unsaved children, what Jesus is like through your example. That's real. That's a, that's a precious gift. There are men, more men and women in our midst, members of our church, who are married to a non-Christian, to an unbeliever. You know who you are. You have persevered in a very difficult marriage for decades. And you need to know, friend, as I speak on behalf of this church, you have our greatest respect. We, we are committed to supporting you. We are committed to praying for you as you bear witness to Christ through your sacrificial love. Hear me, you are not in a second-class marriage. You are making much of Christ in your marriage. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. But there are times an unbelieving husband or wife does not consent to live with a Christian spouse. Right? They they choose to, to separate. Either by physically leaving the marriage or 
by forcing their Christian spouse to physically leave the marriage through their actions. You know, one thinks here of the grievous consequences of of domestic violence. Or a spouse who who wants an open marriage, where, where sexual dalliances are just tolerated, kind of on the side. Or, or a situation where a non-Christian might say, you know, for the kid's sake, or for financial reasons, I don't want a divorce. I'm not going to file for divorce. We can just be roommates and live in the same house as if we're not married. When those sorts of situations, and there are more, when, when an unbelieving spouse separates, what does Scripture require? What's God have to say? 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul's no stranger to this, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, divorce is permissible then. It, it becomes a, a significant, albeit painful, expression of God's justice for an abandoned believer. So what are the principles? One and two. Divorce is forbidden in almost every case. Divorce is permitted in two situations. Now, with that in view, let's go back to Deuteronomy 24. Okay? Let's pick back up here. In verse 1, what's going on? What's happened? The woman's husband has clearly divorced her for unbiblical reasons, okay? There's no sexual immorality in play, and she's not an unbeliever seeking to abandon her husband. What's launching all this drama? He finds something about her to be repulsive. I don't like that. So what happens next? Look at verse 2. If she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, where if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. When I read this this week, I thought, did, did I just walk into the Jerry Springer show? <laughs> it's like, wait, wait, who? Can we, can we assign name tags? Like, I'm confused. I mean, joking aside, isn't, isn't this just a case study for the havoc sin creates? what sin always does. just creates havoc. This isn't God's design. So what's the problem? Here's the main question we need to answer. What, what's the problem with the first husband wanting to remarry the woman? That's really the only command in here. He may not have her again. End of passage. (laughs) 
Okay. Why not? And what are you trying to teach us in that word? Well, here's where principle three comes into play, friends, okay? And we're going to go back again and start reading before and after in our Bibles. Principle three, remarriage requires a biblical divorce. Divorce is forbidden in almost every circumstance. Divorce is permitted in two situations. And remarriage requires a biblical divorce. This is really important. Because remarriage is, isn't a hypothetical question. You know, I was talking about divorce stats earlier, right? Well, let, let's talk about remarriage for a second, okay? Did you know in our own nation, roughly 40% of marriages include a partner who is remarrying? This isn't hypothetical. This is real. So what's, what's Scripture teach us? Well, if your spouse dies before you do, the Word of God is very clear. Remarriage isn't just allowed, but in many cases, encouraged. Why? Because marriage is good. It's a good gift from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.39, it's a great example. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Then what's he say? Only in the Lord. Yeah, I don't know what that means, so let's not worry about it. Yeep. <laughs> What's that mean? As Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 6, that means if you're a Christian, you may not be unequally yoked. Marrying an unbeliever, if you're a Christian, is more than unwise or not recommended. It is forbidden by the word of God. That's not my opinion. That's not this church's stance. That's what God says when he says only in the Lord. That's critical. Whether it's your first marriage or a remarriage, a believer may not marry an unbeliever. Ever. So, what about remarriage after divorce? You got anything to say about that, Paul? Like, you want us just to figure it out? <laughs> Go with my gut. It feels good. Pastor, I, I just feel led by God. Well, God, really? <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> anything in Scripture? Well, Paul doesn't leave us up a creek. What about remarriage after divorce? He anticipates, apparently, this exact situation in 1 Corinthians 7.27. Are you bound to a wife? He asked, do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Light of the present distress, the difficulties the Christians in Corinth were experiencing, as he elaborates elsewhere in the letter, do not seek a wife. His recommendation is counsel. But if you do marry, as far as the moral law and the kingdom of God is concerned, you have not sinned. You haven't sinned. So, so leave that scripture up there, Hunter. Let's think about this. We really need to think carefully here. Okay? What would it mean, what would it look like for someone bound to a wife, someone married, to seek to be free? What, what that phrase, seek to be free, what is Paul, what's he have in view? How do you get free, or how could you be freed from a wife or from a husband? What's he talking about? 
It's not about divorce, right? It would mean getting a divorce. So when Paul asks in the very next clause, are you free from a wife? Anybody out there free from a wife? He's not just talking about those who never got married. You see that? He's talking about everyone, divorcees included, who have no present covenantal obligations to a current or former spouse. That's who he's talking about. If that's you, then what's he say? If you marry, you have not sinned. But how, you ask, Matthew, (laughs) at least I ask this question, how could someone have covenantal obligations to a former spouse? Did, Did you say that, Matthew? Covenantal obligations to a former former spouse. Well, here's how it goes down. If you divorced them for unbiblical reasons, you are responsible, a la 1 Corinthians 7.10, what did we read earlier? To remain unmarried or else be reconciled. You have no right to be in an unmarried state as far as God is concerned. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? I'm not talking about some sort of unbiblical distinction, and this is an eminently unbiblical distinction, where we say things like, well, you're no longer legally married, but you're still married in God's sight. That's unbiblical, friends. So is the distinctions we come up with, like, well, I'm not going to divorce them, I'll just separate them. Separation and divorce are used interchangeably in Scripture. There's not a middle category where you can kind of pat yourself on the back for not getting divorced, but, you know, ideally we would be married, but we're not there, we're not here, I'm just sort of B minus? No. No. You won't find that anywhere in the Word. Paul's talking about the fact That if you get divorced for unbiblical reasons, and many do, then the Lord requires you to either remain unmarried or else pursue reconciliation with your former spouse. That's what God says. But, But if you are free from a spouse, maybe you've never been married. Maybe your first spouse died. Or maybe your previous marriage ended in a biblical divorce or divorced for biblical reasons, then a Christian is allowed to remarry whoever they wish, Paul says. Provided they what? In the Lord. Only in the Lord. But if you choose to remarry after being divorced for unbiblical reasons, then you, my friend, are committing adultery. You're breaking the seventh commandment. Matthew 19, 9. And I say to you, this is Jesus speaking to you. Not Pastor Matthew, not King's Way. The Lord Jesus Christ is addressing your friend. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. That's heavy. That's a big deal. But we still haven't really answered that 
question I posed earlier, have we? How, how can you be guilty of adultery after getting a divorce? Even if it was for unbiblical reasons. How's that a thing? I mean, doesn't, doesn't a divorce, no matter the reasons, dissolve a marriage with all its covenantal responsibilities? How, how can you be unfaithful to a covenant and thereby commit adultery if there is no remaining covenant? Because you got divorced, regardless of the reasons. You following me? Well, that's a good question. I want you to hear how Jay Adams wisely addresses and clarifies how can someone commit the sin of adultery by getting remarried after an unbiblical divorce? Listen to this. Normally, adultery takes place while the marriage contract is still in effect. That's right. In the situation to which Jesus refers, Deuteronomy 24, that contract has been broken for sinful reasons. We established that. Therefore, while it is truly broken, none of this like still married in the sight of God stuff, truly broken and no right privileges or obligations of marriage are permitted or required at this point. Nevertheless, the divorced parties have no right in God's eyes to be in a divorced state. Why? Because it was unbiblical, right? They're obligated to be reconciled in remarriage so that they can renew the contract and continue to pursue their vows. As Paul says, they must remain unmarried, not only in order to be in a position to be reconciled, but as we now see, as Jesus says, also in order to not commit adultery. Then here's the key phrase. Adultery then is sexual sin with someone else other than the one with whom one ought to be having sexual relations. Who's that? The spouse you were wrongly divorced from. So does that mean even though we're divorced, we just should have sexual relations? No. No. You should be reconciled through remarriage. And Jesus makes this exact point. It's so important. Again, in Matthew 5.31. Listen here. It was also said, he's back to Deuteronomy 24 and all misunderstandings. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's what you all said. You want to divorce your wife? Well, just make it formal. Give her a certificate. It's all good. Just, you know, don't do it casual-like. Do it formal. Frame a little piece of paper and give it to her. (laughs) That's what they concluded. No, that's the unbiblical interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 that assumes that As long as you make it official, divorce for any reasons is fine. Jesus totally blows that out of the water. What's he say next? That's what you guys were saying, but I say to you, Sermon on the Mount is full of that. You say, but I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Say, what? Makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus, how on earth could a man who divorces his wife for unbiblical reasons make her commit adultery? 
Well, in the ancient Near East, if a divorced woman had no family to return to, or she had no children of her own to care for her, she was often, not always, forced to remarry to stay out of grinding poverty and starvation. And when she inevitably did, she became a participant in an adulterous relationship. Why? Because she's having sexual relations with someone other than the one with whom she ought to be having sexual relations, namely, her first husband. Because the divorce wasn't biblical. But Jesus is very clear. Because I can just sort of feel, and I feel my own heart, like, but it wasn't her fault, God. Right? Well, Jesus knows that. It's not her fault. She is made to commit adultery, right? She's passive. It's, it's done to her. Whose fault is it? It's her former husband's fault. Right? Why? Because he forced her into an adulterous relationship by divorcing her for unbiblical reasons. And it's her second husband's fault. Why? Because instead of working to restore the first marriage, he took her for himself and committed adultery with her. So the woman's remarriage to her second husband, Deuteronomy 24, was unbiblical, tantamount to adultery, because the divorce that came before it was unbiblical. That's the point. And Jesus' words in Matthew 5 explain why Moses forbid this particular kind of remarriage. Deuteronomy 24.4. Look, look back at verse 4 in Deuteronomy 24. Her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been what? Defiled. She's been defiled. Well, how is she defiled? She was defiled when she entered an adulterous relationship with her second husband by having sexual relations with him after she was divorced for unbiblical reasons. Was it her fault? No. But was the defilement real? Yes. So why can't her first husband just take her back again? I've been asking that all week. (laughs) Why can't you just take her back? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that be like a win-win in the kingdom of God? You know, the first guy, he's like, I don't want anything to do with you. You're repulsive. Get out. And then maybe later he has a change of heart or something. And he's like, oh, can I have you back? And the, the soundtrack plays and the, you know, the drone camera zooms out. And it's like moody English countryside. She's like, yes. You know, wouldn't that be glorified to God? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. He never should have divorced you. But now he wants you back. What a story. Yahweh says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Abominable, the Lord says. You cannot flippantly send a woman away and bring her back like a Netflix subscription. We're not talking, Israel, about 
trading a commodity, which is how women were treated typically in the ancient Near East. We are talking about a covenant relationship. A relationship, I'm looking at you first, husband, that you knowingly shattered, defiling her in the process. And now you want to bring her back as if nothing happened? Friend, remarriage in this instance is deeply wrong because it makes a mockery of the permanence of the institution of marriage. That's the problem. The first husband is taking a casual approach to what God says is utterly sacred. That's the problem. He's he's treating a holy covenant as if it's a thing of little account. He's saying, "Uh, I'd like you in January with a side of fries, but not in February. But but how about we come back in March? Because, you know, that's when March Madness starts up again. No. That's abominable, God says. Why? Because it takes what? It takes marriage. It takes what is designed, what I designed, to shout of my faithfulness, to declare my steadfast love, and it twists it, and it corrupts it, and it turns it into a a consumer enterprise where immediate gratification, not long-term loyalty, is the name of the game. You already send first husband enough by divorcing her in the first place for unbiblical reasons. Don't compound the problem by treating her on the back end like a marital football for you and your buddies to pass around at will. Marriage is a serious thing, first husband. You send her away, you can't have her back. It's a big deal. Now, granted, a case law like this found in Deuteronomy doesn't apply in the exact same way to us today. Okay? Hang with me here. As it did to the nation of Israel. Why not? Because we're not under the Mosaic law in a covenantal sense. We're under the law of Christ. But all Jesus teaches on divorce, all we've seen this morning, the Gospel of Matthew, all Paul reinforces in 1 Corinthians 7, we've read a bunch of verses there, what's it all emphasize? The timeless principle in Deuteronomy 24. What's the point? What's the timeless principle? True then, still true today. Don't divorce your spouse for unbiblical reasons or use the institution of marriage for selfish gain instead of making much of Yahweh. That's the principle. If you do, verse 4, look there, friend, you will what? Bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So let's run the same situation today. How would it play out? I thought this might help some of us, okay? The first husband, this goes down. Verse 1 happens again today. The first husband should be brought under church discipline for pursuing an unbiblical divorce, right? If he refuses to repent, he should be treated as an unbeliever in keeping with Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18, which means the situation then falls under the exception clause in 1 Corinthians 7, treat him as an unbeliever, and the woman is no longer bound. She can leave him, get remarried, without fear of committing adultery. Now what if the second husband shows up today? Bad guy number two. 
(laughs) he should be treated no differently than the first husband. At which point, the woman could be free to remarry her first husband if she wished to do so, provided he has repented of his sin and been restored to the church as as a believer, so she is getting married in the Lord. If he's not, then she's disobeying the biblical requirement to only be married in the Lord by going back and remarrying an unbeliever. God equips us, do you see? (laughs) Sin is endlessly creative, but he's given us all we need for life and godliness to know what to do. What's the main point? We've lingered on number three because it's the most complicated. Remarriage after divorce requires a biblical divorce. That's the point. Otherwise, you have to remain unmarried or be reconciled in remarriage to your former spouse. I've not answered every question. i eager to talk more. But God's word is very clear on that subject. But I do not want to end there, friend. Let's end with this. I exhort you. The Lord exhorts us to hope in the gospel as we guard our witness to the gospel. Hope in the gospel as we guard our witness to the gospel. Why is, let's go back to where we started. Why is being careful to embrace God's design for divorce and remarriage so important? It's clear you're really passionate about this, Matthew. I don't know why. I mean, good for you. I'll let you handle that. No. (laughs) No, no, no. Why is this so important? It's because the gospel is ultimately at stake. Right? Like I said at the beginning, as our marriages go, so our witness in the world to the gospel goes. Remaining faithful to your spouse in marriage is one of the most important ways you show the world what it means for Jesus to be faithful to the church. In the book of Jeremiah, the prophet uses the image of adultery in marriage to describe what Israel has done spiritually in her relationship with the Lord. She's been unfaithful, right? She's played the whore. She's she's gone after all manner of false gods. And in response, the Lord sends her away. It's a biblical divorce. It's also a sharp contrast to the divorce in Deuteronomy 24, right? Where the man's reasons are entirely unbiblical. And yet both situations... Deuteronomy 24 and the Lord with Israel, they have something in common. What's that? A husband divorces his wife and cannot be remarried to her because she's been defiled. She's given herself body and soul to, to another lover. And that's a picture, my friend, of, of the irreversible breach sin creates in our relationship with God. Though, unlike the woman in Deuteronomy 24, nobody makes you and me commit spiritual adultery. No one makes you faithless. It's our inheritance in Adam, right? We, we all reject God's authority of our own accord every time we sin. And Jeremiah tells us that, that where spiritual adultery has occurred, we can't just return to the Lord willy-nilly. The, the shame of our moral defilement is real. And in Jeremiah 3.1, he uses... Deuteronomy 24, to describe the problem of sin. Listen, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him, becomes another man's wife, 
Will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? What's the prophet's point? If it's wrong for the Israelites in Deuteronomy 24 to ignore the defilement of adultery, how much more is it wrong for a holy God? You've played the whore with many lovers, Israel. Would you return to me, declares the Lord? I will not compromise my holiness. I won't. I won't pollute my dwelling place. But friend, here's the amazing good news of the gospel. What was impossible under the law, indeed what the law explicitly forbid on account of our sin, God has accomplished for us through Jesus. What do I mean? He came to earth to obey God on your behalf. As the true Israel, where where you were faithless, he remained faithful. Faithful in his life, faithful in his death. And and through his life and his death, he's made a way for you to be forgiven and restored. His resurrection shouts as much. And so whether you're single or married, or young or old, you need to be reconciled. Spiritually remarried, as it were, to the lover of your souls. His name is Jesus. And if you are willing to repent of your spiritual adultery, then Jesus stands ready and eager and willing to welcome you home, friend, with arms of mercy, a smiling face. It's it's the law in Deuteronomy 24 right here. There can be no remarriage after adultery that makes the promise in Jeremiah 3 a monument to the wonder of God's grace. Listen to the prophet again. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness, says the Lord. Couldn't happen under the law. Grace is going to get it done. Behold, what do we do in response? Yahweh, we come to you. Kingsway, let's come to him. For you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. From the gospel to which marriage bears witness is the gospel that gives us hope for our marriages. That's the point. And it's the same gospel that reminds us our marriage relationships are not ultimate. When the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. When the bridegroom returns, Christian, you'll be part of his spotless bride whether you had the spouse you wanted in this life or not. So we, we, what do we do? We pursue marriage. We work on our marriages. We help each other remain faithful to our spouses. But, but we don't, we must not load human marriage with the weight of our eternal joy. Whether you are already married or aspire to be married. And do not believe the lie that if you're not happily married in this life, you're missing out. Why not? Because, friend, your greatest joy, the the only eternal joy, will never be found in a spouse next to you in bed. It will only be found in knowing and loving Jesus Christ. You're not, from the standpoint of eternity, made for him or her. You're made for him. So don't ask your spouse to do what only Jesus can do for you. Come what may, hold fast to him. Here's some practical ways we can do that as a church. 
And we'll end here. Bruce, if you bring the band on up. How do we hold fast to a faithful God? This whole area. Four suggestions. One, please regularly pray for married couples in our midst. Okay? Will you pray for married couples in our midst? (laughs) And those preparing for marriage. Second, ask married couples pointed questions about how their relationship's going. Don't assume silence means it's all good. You know, if you have any troubles on aisle four, feel free to call. I'll phone your pastor. No, (laughs) okay? No, where are you growing? Where are you struggling? Where do you see you need for God's help? That should be typical conversation in the church. Third, if, if you're not yet married but aspire to be married, I'm looking at you singles who aspire to be married. Don't have to be, but if you do, Prepare now to be a faithful spouse by practicing faithfulness in every area of your life. Okay? Knowing how to be loyal in relationships doesn't just jump on you at the altar. You you learn that or fail to learn that long beforehand. Learn to be a faithful friend, to be a faithful teammate, a faithful employee. How about this in our day and age? Learn to make commitments and stick to them. (laughs) Even if a better option, a better flavored Frosty, seems to show up at the last minute. (laughs) And finally, if someone tells you they're thinking about a divorce, but they claim to be a Christian, I charge you, exhort them to submit their thoughts and their actions to the authority of the Word of God. Don't say, that's hard, I'll be praying for you. That's not love. That's fear of losing a relationship. Speak the truth in love. Trust the Lord with the results. If they are disobeying the Lord, lovingly, gently, but clearly, tell them. Point them toward power of the gospel. But don't be afraid to say things that you think they may not want to hear. You represent him. You live for him. You speak for him. And in all these situations, because they're endlessly complicated, ask for help, okay? Ask, talk to your community group leader. Talk to your pastors. Talk to a Christian friend who isn't just Googling, what's the Bible say about divorce? And then spitting it back to you, all right? doesn't matter what you think or your friends think. What matters is what God has said. May we be that church, friends, for the glory of the bridegroom and the good and beauty of the bride. Guard the gospel by guarding marriage. Let's stand and sing.